For the News and Observer, I'm Don Bond, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, January 23rd, 2023. If you're listening to this on Monday, we are two days out from the actual start of the legislative session. The one two weeks ago was a lot of ceremony, and as House uh, Democratic leader Robert Reeves joked, the kumbaya time, but that time is over and the actual work and disagreements and everything else start. So my guest today is someone who was there for a lot of it in the building for four years, although in the legislative time, I'm not sure what that actually uh, counts as, maybe 25 years. Uh, Pat Ryan, who was a fixture there, a spokesperson for Republican Senate leader Phil Berger. Pat left the building to start his own public relations firm about a year ago, I guess. And he also occasionally writes op-ed pieces, which you'll read in our publication. So thanks for being here, Pat. Thank you, Don. This is my very first podcast, so I hope I, I hope I do okay. <laughs> uh, well, what did you do? So I met you when I went to take over and be uh, as Burr spokesperson. What did you do before then? And what's your local sports allegiance? That's we got to start with that. Graduated from UNC in 2011, so UNC is my local sports allegiance, as well as the New York Giants, who are going to be being the Eagles tomorrow night. Um, uh, after college, worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years. My boss lost, and so I lost my job, and then moved to New York City to work on the uh, New York City Mayor's Office's Hurricane Sandy Recovery Program. That was in 2013, a few weeks after um, after that storm. And so I stuck around there for a few years, actually worked in the de Blasio administration as well, so I'm a de Blasio Republican. What does that mean? <laughs> no, it means I'm probably the rougher Bill de Blasio for a period of time. Um, <laughs> And then uh, my wife and I had our daughter in 2015, and um, we both wanted to get out of New York City. Okay. Again, that's Pat Ryan, not to be confused with Paul Ryan, who has not been on the podcast. <laughs> Though he did, and um, I had the signed uh, picture from Paul Ryan, and he wrote a great last name. <laughs> uh, so uh, part of the reason I wanted to have you on, now that you're not in the building, is, is telling people a little bit more about what goes on there. Um, those of you that are listening who are very familiar with it or not, or just kind of wonder sort of how things run and what that process is like with, when the sessions start. So this week, we're probably looking at not a lot, just bill filings and like things just starting starting to roll the house rules. Uh, if, I think listeners might know, or if not, there are temporary rules and they'll be debated and voted on. And there's a a lot of drama there about potential override votes and voting on a bill. The Senate already passed its rules on the first day, which is a little more Senate-y. How would, how would you describe the, the House versus Senate as far as initial things like rolling out rules and, and just getting things rolling? Well, let's try not to offend anybody. Senator Berger has been the leader of the Senate since 2011. Senator Rabin has been in charge of the Rules Committee for a number of, number of years. It's, you know, it's a pretty well-oiled machine, and there were no, to my knowledge, substantial changes of rules. So just given that out of the way at the beginning seems fairly standard. Um, I know that there was some level of controversy about a, a couple of changes to pass rules. You know, that's probably why it's, um, it may take a little bit under. So when, when I started covering this four years ago, it was majorities in both chambers, but not the supermajority. So in the Senate, it was a lot of, you know, these few uh, more middle of the road Democrats and who would vote with Republicans now Senate Republicans don't need Democrats to vote with them. Do you see a similar thing to what, and even before your time there, where the leadership can do whatever it wants or seeing how that turned out um, for just statewide image from HB2 or anything else? 
that that things are a little bit different than they were that first era of of supermajority, or do you? I mean, it all remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, so I wasn't here in in twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen when when that played out. Um, but I think as with any anything led the organization or you know, legislative body, um, probably see how certain things played out and you know address course based on that, right? So, um, you know. I, I would be surprised if there were, you know, some extremely controversial social issues that are that are new, you know, beyond what uh, what was discussed last year in the context of uh, parental rights and things like that. I'm, those are certainly flashpoints. I don't see those as especially crazy, right? Other states are adopting those, um, so I, you know, I wouldn't expect to see much in the way of um, you know really surprising initiatives. Again, at least on the Senate side, um, it's been a, a pretty well-run uh, machine for a number of years. Um, and most of the the ideas that the Senate has, especially around economic and fiscal policy, have been talked about since 2011, right? So we're, well, I think it's, it's you know, there's likely to be a focus on that and um, and certainly some of the issues of the day. And um, we'll probably talk about abortion in a few minutes because you told me you want to talk about that. But that's my that's my general sense. And, and yeah, the, when there is a, a supermajority, of course, a supermajority can... Um, can can do what it wants without fear of, um, of 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 running off being run off the road, so to speak, by a veto. Now, of course, it's a different situation in the House, um, so that'll certainly be part of the dynamic. As I'm sure the House and the Senate negotiate on their policies, priorities, uh, potentially work on bills together in conference. Right. Um, it seemed like like Senate Leader Berger and Governor Cooper's relationship kind of shifted some. I mean, in the past few years than than even a little bit prior to that, just because of both of them having that common ground of wanting to get something done. And I don't know if that was them, you know, being together more on on Medicaid expansion or because it was that force dynamic of, you know, wanting not being able to override a veto and finding something in the middle there. Do you think that that's different now? Reporters, we asked Berger about this, you know, in the past month, and he said, no, I don't really see it any different. There are things that agree on, things that we don't. But it is different when you have a supermajority and you're the Senate leader with a, um, you know, Democratic governor who's running out the end of the second term. Yeah. So when, you know, when there's a supermajority in the legislature, which, again, there's, there's not one vote short, but it, people seem to think that they're, they're fairly close. And when he had a supermajority legislature, the governor's really only role is in opposing certain issues, is to just make political and public points about why he doesn't like them, right? Try to extract some political and PR cost from the policy choices because he can't block them. Um, and so when you have that dynamic, and it's a natural, like there's no reason that the governor should be doing that. That's the only power he would have if, if, if there were a supermajority. When you have that down either, of course, that probably, I think, creates some more public conflict between the two branches. Um, whereas the last four years, the governor did have a pretty big role, especially considering legislative Democrats um, largely defer to him in negotiating resolutions to certain things. Um, and so when you have that dynamic, there's a lot more discussion and compromise that plays out behind the scenes. Um, and you don't have those sort of public flashpoints. I think it's just a, a function of the structure and dynamic of whether or not there's a supermajority. I don't know necessarily that Governor Cooper has changed or that Senator Berger has changed. I just think that the political situations that they're in um, result in different strategies for how to um, agree or, or fight. You mentioned that, you know, the biggest issue that they disagree on is abortion. 
And that's, a, you know, pretty significant what, what Cooper wants to do, who said that he wants to protect reproductive rights as they are, and Berger talking about not any specifics uh, yet, uh, depending on what the caucus wants, but that Republicans definitely want to pass an abortion bill that will, and if they, you know, override a veto into law, that would restrict abortion um, more than the current state law, which is 20 weeks with, with some exceptions. So... How do you see that playing out this session? Is it something that would happen? You know, let's do it in the first month and get it out there because of all the attention on it. Is it going to drag out and end up a budget policy provision? Because we've seen things shoved in the budget before. Yeah, I don't think that they'll necessarily rush anything out because they're worried about people talking about it. I think that they'll they'll spend their time um, first reaching agreement within the caucus for, for where people are and what kind of bill they'd like to see. And then have it, you know, go through the standard process. I think that drives the timeline more than anything else. Um, you know, I don't I, I it's a secret that um, very restrictive abortion measures are probably a pretty big political liability. Um, I think you've seen votes in a number of states that, um, even Republican states, that reject, you know, the the full bans or the six weeks bans or you know whatever number you want to pick. Um, so I think there's probably recognition from the smarter political thinkers over there that you know, this may be a battle that we won't win if we go that extreme. Um, and so... By yeah. by when do you mean when their next election, essentially? Yeah, it yeah. become a major political liability, I think mm-hmm. most people think. Um, and so then you look at, what okay, what are some of the options out there? Well, if you look at European countries, most of them have had a democratic process that resulted in somewhere between a 12 and 20 week abortion regime. Um, polling shows that you know, a good number of, of folks in North Carolina would be okay with something like that. Uh, but what I don't think you'll ever see is um, it's Senator Berger getting in front of the caucus and saying, this is what we're going to do. I think you'll, you'll see a lot of um, internal discussion among the members um, about you know where people are, what they'd like to see. And once that internal cohesion exists, then you'll see something rolling out. Um, I think Senator Berger said before he doesn't want to be a parade of one. Um, I think that's what makes him a pretty good leader is you know making sure that he's he's representing the interests of the caucus. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what else the caucus might do uh, over in the Senate Republican side. We'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer Politics reporter Don Vaughn here with Republican former staffer and current public relations consultant Pat Ryan. Before the break, Pat was talking about the dynamic with Berger not being a parade of one, but he also is the leader. So how does that actually work? When he said he wants to talk to the caucus, but he's in charge of the caucus, so how does that actually play out? Yeah, I think that there's a sense out there that what Berger says happens no matter what. Um, and the, the underlying assumption there is that, you know, Senator Berger tells all the members of the caucus, what they should do and how things are going to work and everybody just sort of says, okay, but um, that's not that's not the case. Uh, there are a few different leadership styles that you can have out there. I think that, that Senator Berger's leadership style is enormously effective in that the reason that when he goes out and says something, it usually happens is because what he's saying has been discussed, vetted, agreed upon, changed in some, in some uh, instances by the caucus. And so when he does come out, say, and and give a press conference or a press release about, hey, this is what you know we're going to be pursuing in terms of abortion policy. The caucus has already discussed that, and they're already okay and 
generally aligned on on what the final decision is. Um, and so, you know, in my experience, that's that's a pretty effective way to lead a group of people. Who does most of the talking during Senate Republican caucus meetings? Uh, I'm not getting too much detail about internal caucus meetings, you know, other than to say that there's usually a healthy amount of discussion. You know, look, some issues folks aren't going to have much experience in, and so they're not going to you know, speak about it. Other issues, um, somebody may be very passionate about it, and they'll, you know, share their opinion, and people will speak up them. And that's it. It's a, it's, a, it's a healthy, I think, a healthy group dynamic. How would you describe the caucus now, since a lot of the senators you already worked with for years, and it's we switched up a little bit. Ballard, not, not Senator Diana Ballard, she lost her primary to Ralph Heiss. She was a, a major force in the Republican caucus, um, especially with education issues. She's not there anymore. The dynamic is different. There's also Kathy Harrington didn't run again, so... Uh, she was, as far as women in the top leadership, there aren't women in the Republican caucus in the top leadership, but there's, um, I mean, Kravik is, is still there. Like, she seems to be, you know, a strong voice. But how do you think the caucus is a little bit different since the election? Yeah, so there's going to be turnover every election, right? You know, the body looks much different than it did in, say, 2011. Um, but again, this is just in my experience. Um, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of respect for the institution of the Senate and that culture has been built up before Senator Berger, you know, last night, right? Um, there's this culture within the Senate of, of respect for the institution and deference at times to what's in the best interest of the institution. And you see that play out, I think, sometimes in, in Senator Berger's relationship with minority leader Dan Blue. They have, in my experience, an excellent working relationship. And so, yeah, when there's new faces that come in, um, they're coming into a set culture um, that I think is, is, is valuable and it's what I think keeps the Senate, um, in some ways, having the same brand, even though leaders may have changed, even though members may have changed. It's it's a culture that endures. I think that well, several House members are over in the Senate now, mostly on the Democratic side. But former Representative Hannig is in the Senate now, so he will at least bring some fashion changes to the culture of the Senate. Yeah. Uh, Hannig is known for um, very attention-getting blazers, so that'll that'll change things over in that chamber. Yeah. I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get to headliner of the week, want to go through a couple other policy things and, and what you think is going to happen with them. Uh, what about medical marijuana? Where do you think that's going to go? Yeah, I think it's it's impossible to discuss that issue without discussing the the deeply personal and emotional story of the man behind it, who's the rules chairman, um, Senator Bill Rabin. He's been in the Senate since Republicans first took over in 2011. A fiercely loyal, highly respected member of the caucus who because of his personality and his position as rules chair, wields considerable power. He wasn't supposed to be alive. He was supposed to die 20 years ago. Um, he barely survived an aggressive form of cancer. And so I sat next to him when he was telling this story in the context of the medical marijuana legislation last year um, to Kyle Billiman at the assembly, who I think did a great job um, writing about it. And, you know, all three of us had tears in our eyes at the end of the conversation. I can't do the story justice, but but the, the power behind that bill is the compelling story and personality of Senator Bill Rabin. And I, I think it's just a remarkable political story and it's an amazing personal story. Um, so that passed the Senate last year because of Bill Rabin. Um, and, you know, will the House take it up this year? I, I can't say. I don't know that anybody knows. Um, but I would expect it to go through the Senate again. And that hopefully gets on into law. You think there are allies in the House? There are enough allies in the House? Yeah, I think, 
first of all, the, the politics of and the perception of marijuana itself has changed dramatically. And not not even talking about full legalization, we're talking about medicinal purposes. And the, I think the benefits of medical marijuana have been um, spelled out in a number of pretty credible venues and studies. Um, and it polls at like some like seventy five or eighty percent. I mean, it's not a controversial issue. So you know, I think those things hopefully combine to to result in in a new law. Um, but what was that, Steve? All right. Before we get to headliner, like one more issue that I think the some of the dynamic in, shift in the caucus will potentially affect is uh, Senator Newton, who's now majority leader. And I said this before when I would write about the budget and ask him about taxes, who would light up like a Christmas tree because he is so excited to talk about tax cuts, which he supports. And now that he has a, a different, uh, more prominent role in the Republican caucus, do you think that that is something where we're definitely going to see at some point. Berger has said that he, that's what he wants. You know, again, with his, of course, he said he has the caveat of, you know, it depends on what the caucus wants. But I don't think any Republican senator is going to say, no, I don't want tax cuts. That's kind of their brand. So, right. I think it's a longstanding uh, philosophical goal for the Senate Republican Caucus since they took over in 2011 to cut taxes as low as they can. And so, you know, from that perspective, you see successive multi billion dollar budget surpluses. Um, and in in their eyes, that means well, we're we're still taxing too much, and so we should we should cut taxes even further. Um, you know, unlike some of the doomsday prophecies from from years ago, the budget hasn't exploded. There aren't you know months and years of massive deficits because of, of a revenue crunch. Um, in fact, the opposite has happened, and so I think that reality, coupled with just the the major success that the state has seen in the last decade, uh, probably emboldens. Senator Berger and Senator Newton, the other folks in the Senate Republican Caucus, to say this this was the right policy choice back then and it continues to be the right policy choice now. All right. So tax cuts on the horizon. And I'll plug our, if you all are listening to this on Monday, came out in print on Sunday and, and online a few days earlier. Uh, we've done more legislative preview coverage, including I interviewed the, uh, the new state budget director, who's part of the Cooper administration, looking at what that potential revenue forecast is is going to bring. And I believe her phrase about, you know, the state and national economists are looking at a slow and mild recession and that tax collections recently are up. But again, it's too early. The joint revenue forecast between the, the state budget office and the, and the legislature will come out in February and then another one um, in May, which is prime budget season. So I'm sorry we didn't get to talk more about the budget, but... Uh, I'll segue <laughs> our quick to uh, headliner of the week. Um, I'll go first. Mine, can we record this on Friday? By Monday, things could have changed. But my headliner is the state auditor, Beth Wood, who it came out this week was uh, charged with a, a hit and run in December. And there's new developments about every five minutes on it. So we'll find out um, what else is, is going to come to play with that. And as of Friday afternoon, she hasn't said anything publicly about it herself. So. Pat, uh, who or what is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week is the Board of Governors, uh, the UNC System Board of Governors recently proposed um, a new system-wide policy that would prohibit compelled speech among faculty and students on political or social topics. And, and my sense of what's driving that is a number of, of colleges and, and universities and departments in the UNC system um, have recently amended their promotion and tenure guidelines to require faculties to submit basically essays about you know, what they're doing to advance social justice. 
and we can talk about whether or not you know social justice and advancing those causes is good or bad. But there's there's certainly a, on another side to that debate, including among prominent academics in other colleges that say, you know, I, I question the narrative about systemic racism, or I question some of the doctrine that's out there. In my mind, those voices are equally valid, and if if they wouldn't be promoted or even hired at a UNC system school, to me, that that's a major problem. All right. We've got coverage of that in the paper, too, from uh, Corey Dean had just written was at that meeting. So, all right. Well, thank you, Pat, for being on Under the Dome for the first time. Maybe you'll come back. We'll see you now. Well, I did. All right. For the News and Observer, uh, I'm Don Vaughn. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Also, happy start of the actual legislative session. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.